The purpose of this activity is to expand the reach of chest content through awareness, critique, and discussion. All articles have undergone peer review for methodological rigor and audience relevance. Any views asserted are those of the speakers and are not endorsed by chest. Listeners should be aware that speakers' opinions may vary and are advised to read the full corresponding journal articles for complete context. This content should not be used as a basis for medical advice or treatment, nor should it substitute the judgment used by clinicians in the practice of evidence-based medicine. Hello and welcome to the Chess Journal Podcast, where each month we host a discussion with the authors of important articles from the current issue of the journal, adding context and commentary to the challenges facing clinicians in the fields of pulmonary, critical care, and sleep medicine. To introduce today's topic, here's your host, Dr. Dominique Pepper. On behalf of CHESS, I'd like to welcome you to this month's CHESS podcast. My name is Dominique Pepper, and I'm the moderator of the CHESS podcast section. Thank you all for joining us today for what will be a really informative discussion on how I do it, setting and titrating positive end expiratory pressure. Today, we're very fortunate to have Dr. Scott Millington as our guest. Scott, can you please introduce yourself? Absolutely. Uh, So my name is Scott Millington. It's a real honor and privilege to be here with you today. I'm an intensivist from Ottawa, Canada. I was actually born here in Ottawa and then went off and did medical training in various places around the world. And I've settled back here over the last nine years. And I practice critical care medicine at a large academic center here in Ottawa. You know, in addition to my clinical work, um, my academic interests have always been around POCUS or point of care ultrasound. And I was really fortunate in my timing. I had the opportunity to participate in the big groundswell of excitement over the point of care ultrasound explosion over the last, say, 15 years or so. And before this awful COVID pandemic, I traveled around the world talking about POCUS and teaching about ultrasound. And hopefully we'll get back there someday soon. And, you know, more more recently, my, my interests have turned a little bit more towards the idea of knowledge translation, which I think brings us to the article that we're here to talk about today. Yeah, it was a really informative article. Uh, In it, you discussed um, how you set and titrate PEEP. So maybe you could go ahead and kick us off. Why did you write this perspective piece? Well, I really like knowledge translation these days. And, you know, that's the idea of taking something, something complicated and, you know, distilling, distilling it down to its essential elements and, um, you know, explaining it to somebody. So we all do this all day, every day, especially if you work in an academic center where there's students and residents around. So it's, it's a very interesting process to go through. Um, it's even more interesting in critical care where we have just so many problems where there are seemingly equal approaches to a complicated problem. You know, one of these things where you ask 10 different people how they would do something and you get 10 different answers and all of them seem equally valid, uh, you know, on their face. So, um, that's really interesting. And I started doing knowledge translation on topics that I knew very well, you know, point of care ultrasound. And, and I've actually since discovered that it's, it's, it's even more satisfying to attempt knowledge translation for something where you're not an expert per se, you know, where you're perhaps a semi-educated amateur. Um, so you go through the journey of learning, educating yourself, talking to experts, you get comfortable to the point where then you can back knowledge, translate it to your former self before you knew all this. And in going through that process, I think you become better at knowledge translation because you have the lived experience of having gone through the journey that you're going to help other people go through, you know, recently. So, the, you know, that, that brings us to the idea of PEEP and, and, and going 
all the way back through my critical care fellowship, I was always somewhat unsatisfied with what I personally understood about this seemingly important topic. You know, PEEP is something, so PEEP, positive end expiratory pressure, is something that we set for every patient who's mechanically ventilated. And even if you don't work with ventilated patients, if you have patients on non-invasive ventilation, CPAP is the same as PEEP conceptually. A patient on BiPAP, the EPAP or expiratory pressure is the same as PEEP conceptually. And it's something that, that, that feels like it should be very important, but there's really no standardized agreement on how we, we set it. And, and COVID, the COVID pandemic, that lived experience really, I think, exposed this for me because PEEP suddenly became an even hotter topic. And as we struggled with these patients who had different physiology, preserved lung compliance, et cetera, really there were even more struggles to understand what the best PEEP value might be for, for that kind of patient. So there's a local practice pattern here in Ottawa. I've had the opportunity to work at half a dozen other academic centers around the world who have slightly different approaches. But you know, the whole state of affairs, it seemed a little bit like a emperor's new clothes type situation where, you know, I didn't feel perfectly confident. And, you know, when you spoke to someone else about it and, and gained their confidence, it, it became clear that perhaps, you know, they, uh, you know, didn't feel as confident as well. So I thought it was a, you know, an excellent topic for knowledge translation and perhaps timely given the recent COVID-19 pandemic. Yeah, you're absolutely right. Um, the number of different experts I've heard talk about how they set their PEEP differs considerably. So I'm curious to hear how you go about setting it. Um, but before we get there, maybe you could describe for our audience uh, what are the benefits and harms of PEEP? Obviously, it seems to have a very uh, important effect both on the cardiac system and the pulmonary system. Well, absolutely. And, and you know, the importance of PEEP is... is uh you know, to, 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 to start with a related uh, question is, 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 is a difficult one. You know, I don't think anybody really knows how important PEEP is. I, I don't feel that I do. Um, I think it's important. I think most of my colleagues feel that it's important, but it's hard to be sure based on, you know, the state of the literature. It, it does feel important. And, you know, you know perhaps drawing a, a parallel to tidal volumes and you think about the big ARDSnet trial, you saw that turning a dial, you know, lowering the tidal volume achieved really an astonishing uh, risk reduction of death for a patient. And, and, and so we're, I think, hopeful, at least I am, that there's some better PEEP value out there that could achieve a similar benefit. We just have to find it. And certainly it's not for lack of trying. Lots of people are working on this, but it's, there's no clear consensus at the present time. So, you know, how important is it is an interesting question. I feel like it's important and I hope it is, and I hope we'll discover that it is, um, you know, moving to your question about benefits and harms, we spent about, I'd say half the article discussing benefits and harms. And, and we tried to come up with a simplistic approach. So we, we came up with two of each. So starting with the harms, most famously, PEEP will make you hypotensive if, if applied in excess, um, PEEP reduces venous return to the right atrium. It introduces increased afterload at the level of the right ventricle. The effect of both of this can be decreased cardiac output and hypotension. So there's a straightforward way to do this. You know, if, if there's too much PEEP, the patient's blood pressure will be low. That's, that's, that's very easy to detect in real time. You know, more subtly, there's this idea of acute core pulmonale, which is right ventricular dysfunction induced by excessive PEEP you know, usually in the process of another pulmonary disease. And, and we recommend as a slightly more advanced thing to do, if you have the skill set to look with point of care ultrasound at the right heart, but keeping it simple, uh, PEEP can cause hypotension and that's, that's a potential harm, of course. Uh, 
Um, you know, secondly, and more subtly, we think about over distension, you know, using the analogy of a, you know, a, a balloon, like a party balloon, you know, if you, if you, uh, over distend it, then it, it might pop. And this is, you know, not a, as a pretty mediocre metaphor, but, uh, we all have taken care of patients with, um, ARDS who go on to develop overt barotrauma, like a pneumothorax, you know, but more subtly still, there is what you might call volume trauma, which is kind of like the shear injury induced by alveolar overdistension, and biotrauma, which is the release of inflammatory markers related to overdistension, which is really the last thing that a patient with ARDS needs, given that they already have an inflammatory lung insult. So that one's a little more subtle. It's hard to detect in real time. It presumably harms the patient over the course of their ICU illness and can result in worsening outcomes, but it's awfully hard to pick up you know, at the bedside. So those are two harms and, and two potential benefits uh, that we broke down would be, you know, first of all, and most importantly, improvements in oxygenation. That's why we're here in the first place. And if you have a patient where you're unsatisfied with their oxygenation level, after you've put them on more oxygen, you would think first of turning up the PEEP. So we're increasing potentially the surface area available for gas exchange, and you are potentially improving their oxygenation. Now there's some subtleties that we talked about in the article, you know, for example, because PEEP can reduce cardiac output, you can actually uh, reduce um, the amount of pulmonary shunting going on. So that will have the effect of improving the appearance of oxygenation, meaning improving the saturation, for example, but it may actually result in a reduction in oxygen delivery, which is of course, presumably the more important thing. You get less molecules to the level of the tissues. So in a perfect world, you would want to be monitoring a patient's cardiac output while you adjust PEEP. But to keep it relatively straightforward, if you increase the PEEP and their saturation level increases and you're able to wean down the FiO2, then you're, you know, happy and cautiously optimistic. So that's one benefit. And the second benefit is around this concept of under distension. We might call that adelectotrauma which is a word that's kind of hard to say, but easy to conceptualize. Thinking again of that party balloon, you know, when you first try to blow up a balloon, it's really hard that first breath, you know, to get it unstuck. And if you think about an alveoli that has insufficient peep, it might completely collapse and then be reopened and collapse and reopen with every single respiratory cycle. And that is felt to be injurious and particularly to release inflammatory mediators. So you know, a potential benefit of PEEP, the second one would be to uh, reduce that atelectotrauma to keep the al- more of the alveoli open uh, during all phases of the respiratory cycle and reduce that inflammatory insult. So there you go. We've kind of thought of broad strokes, two potential harms and two potential benefits. Yeah, I think you set the stage well for us, Scott. So let's dive into how you would recommend folks go about setting PEEP. Um, and we may just limit it to ARDS for the time being, and maybe towards the end of the podcast, we can uh, mention some uh, separate scenarios such as COPD, heart failure, and obesity. But in a patient who has uh, ARDS, possibly due to COVID-19, how would you go about setting your initial PEEP and then adjusting it? So um, it's a tough question, and it's tough to feel very confident in making a recommendation. Um, you know, certainly we're not uh, presenting what we think is any kind of final answer here, but, you know, we, we've, um, we've um, tried to come up with some, some general recommendations here. Um, I think that 
fundamentally in the article, we're recommending two things. Um, we're trying to focus on, on, on better peep, which is the idea that, you know, with our current armamentarium of tools, we can't really hope at the present time to know the quote unquote best peep for a patient. But that's not, I think, reason to descend into total nihilism. Um, I think we can aim for a better peep. And we've recommended, as I say, kind of two things. You know, first of all, although we focus on a pragmatic approach here, I think it's worth investing a little bit of time into thinking it through. And we've recommended a three-step approach. You know, first of all, some suggestions as how to pick a safe starting peep in the immediate post-intubation period. Second of all, thinking about potential harms of PEEP, uh, as we've just discussed. And if you have reason to suspect that your patient is suffering from one of them, you know, considering a trial of lower PEEP. And if that's not the case, moving on to the third step, which is to consider whether your patient, in this case with ARDS, might benefit from a trial of, of more PEEP. So that's the first thing. And, and once you get to that third step, you know, the second idea that we recommend is considering a trial of um, more PEEP. And, and the method that we've recommended is a, a downward titration trial. It's a little bit counterintuitive, but not particularly complex. The idea here is that you take a relatively large jump in PEEP. So for example, you might go from a PEEP of 10 all the way up to 20, you know, if the patient can withstand it from a hemodynamic point of view. And then from that point on, you're trying to gain recruitment and thereafter down titrate your PEEP in, you know, perhaps two centimeter of water intervals in an effort to find the lowest peep that maintains the degree of recruitment that you've presumably just achieved. Um, so that's, that's the idea um, it, in, in terms of a downward titration. And when you're downward titrating or, or for that matter, upward titrating, you need something to titrate to. And in our article, we've recommended using uh, a variable called the, the driving pressure. So driving pressure is something that's straightforward to understand, straightforward to measure on any modern ventilator. It's a concept that most people are at least loosely familiar with. And we can think about it in, in terms of two different formulas to help. So the first is that driving pressure is the plateau pressure minus the PEEP, simple formula. The PEEP is something that we set, so that one's easy. The plateau pressure is something that most people are familiar with measuring, requiring an inspiratory pause. And so you can see that it's pretty practical to do. And the second formula is to think of driving pressure as the tidal volume divided by the static lung compliance. And this formula helps to il illustrate at least the theoretical benefit here. The numerator tidal volume is a variable that's best kept low, you know, within reason, as we know from the ARDSNET trial. Uh, and the denominator compliance is a variable that, you know, intuitively is better when it's, it's high, more towards normal. So we want a relatively low numerator and a relatively high denominator. Therefore, a lower driving pressure is better. So essentially, the recommendation uh, to consider is titrating PEEP to the best, i.e. lowest driving pressure, which is essentially the same as titrating to best lung compliance, although via a way that I think is more intuitive and, and, and more straightforward to do. So that would be the uh, proposal on the table, uh, acknowledging uh, the limitations and acknowledging that there are lots of other alternative options. So let's jump into that initial uh, PEEP setting. So in your article, you mentioned that there's two main ways that folks can go about doing this, um, either using the Gattanoni approach or the OddsNet approach. Um, can you describe those for us? Yeah. So, so, you know, there's a table in that 
uh, ArdsNet trial. It's, it's, it's referred to in reference in our article uh, where the, uh, there is a uh, suggestion for a peak value based on the patient's FiO2. So you, you, you look at what FiO2 your patient's on, you look at uh, the table, and it tells you within a relatively narrow range what uh, PEEP you should consider. And this is a very, very common way to do it. Um, I'm not aware of any kind of survey data, but I think that this would be the most common way to select PEEP. In, it's, it's a method that's used in, in several trials where they've looked at high PEEP versus low PEEP. And you know, realistically, uh, the moment of intubating a patient with ARDS is uh, always a dramatic moment, uh, you know, fraught with some danger. And so what you really need is you just need a quick number. You need to start somewhere. Uh, and this is a reasonable way to pick a starting value in a protocolized fashion. The alternative, as, as you alluded to, and as proposed by Dr. Gadnoni in an article, which we also referenced, is, um, you know, after his careful review a few years ago, is to, to just think of a typical you know, definition of ARDS based on a PF ratio. Um, a patient with mild ARDS, you might um, choose between a PEEP of 5 and 10, and a patient with moderate ARDS between 10 and 15, and in a patient with severe ARDS, so, you know, a very low PF ratio, you might... Uh, oscillate between 15 and 20. And so both of those approaches usually land you reasonably within the same range of potential PEEPs. In the immediate post-intubation period, you're always worried about hypotension given the medications and the positive pressure that's just been initiated. And so you might want to err on the side of the lower end of the suggested range um, until the hemodynamics level out a little bit. Um, So that's a, you know, I think a, a reasonable, safe, pragmatic way to start your journey. And that's um, you're recommending for patients who are diagnosed with uh, ARDS. Let's take a slightly different situation. If I have a patient with um, obesity or heart failure or hypovolemia or obstructive lung disease, uh, where would you recommend uh, initially setting that PEEP? Wow, that's, uh, you know, it's it's tough to give you an answer. I I hate answering questions with it depends. Um, I think this is a, like many elements of critical care medicine, this is a risk benefit calculation where you're not allowed to know the specific numbers. So that makes life pretty hard. I think you've given a couple good examples where you would perhaps be worried about the benefit. So let's talk about a higher level of PEEP. You gave some case examples there where a higher level of PEEP might be uh, particularly beneficial or alternatively uh, injurious. So for example, in a patient who is obese, uh, you know, certainly there's, there's reason to believe that higher levels of PEEP would be beneficial due to the collapse and atelectasis induced by the weight of the chest wall, for example, uh, or the effect of the diaphragm pushing up. So in that, in that case, you may eventually want to get to a higher PEEP level. But again, I think the priority in the immediate post-intubation period is to start conservatively with a, a safe PEEP while you allow the hemodynamic storm to settle down a little bit. Uh, on the other hand, you mentioned uh, patients with, um, with uh, you know, potential hypovolemia. Uh, in that case, you'd certainly worry that the risk benefit of higher PEEP might indeed be unfavorable, at least until they're better resuscitated. And so you would start uh, you know, even more so on a, on a lower end in terms of your PEEP. Uh, I'm not sure I can be much more uh, specific uh, than that. I think you mentioned COPD as well, which is a, a whole other a difficult 
uh, scenario. Um, you know, certainly with hyperinflation, you would be worried about very high levels of PEEP. Having said that, the manifestation of auto PEEP is always potentially present uh, and may necessitate some degree of PEEP. I'm, I'm giving you general concepts here, and I think I'm encouraging just a uh, rough risk benefit calculation, um, which we, we go into a little bit of detail in the article around issues, uh, particularly of, of obesity. No, absolutely. Um, as you mentioned very well in the article, um, we don't want one size fits all. We do want a personalized approach and we need to consider the underlying condition. So you've set the initial PEEP setting, you've intubated the patient, um, uh, you've chosen um, a PEEP value based um, either on the odds net um, uh, titration scale or else on uh, Dr. Gattinoni's recommendations. So you set that initial PEEP and then you need to decide, um, do I need to adjust the PEEPs? How do you go about doing that? So I think the first thing, again, you know, if we're in the immediate post-intubation period especially, is to think about the potential harms of PEEP, right? So we talked about the one that's uh, relatively obvious to the naked eye, which is uh, hypotension. If you uh, like to put an ultrasound probe on your patients, which I certainly do, you can have a look at their, their right heart as well. And just, just think about whether you're worried about the harms of PEEP, in which case you may want to trial uh, an even lower PEEP value. It, it would not be unusual to have a patient who's hypotensive, especially post-intubation, where you start them on a value of PEEP and then you find yourself in the, the next few minutes or, or, uh, or, or hour or two lowering your PEEP because you're worried about hypotension and increasing vasopressor requirements and, and the like. So I think start with that first concern about safety and, and potential harm. Uh, once you've you know, surmounted that obstacle and that, that, that high risk time period, then the patient has leveled out hemodynamically and, and you might start to wonder uh, about uh, increasing their PEEP, thinking about the two benefits that we've outlined, and then embarking on that trial that we've recommended of, of uh, increasing PEEP, uh, whether you elect for a downwards titration, as we've uh, you know described in the article, whether you elect to titrate it to driving pressure or not. So I think that that's a, you know, a sort of a typical sequence of events that you might expect. So I did find it interesting in your article that you mentioned that um, you can put your ultrasound uh, probe, um, see the right ventricle, see that it's enlarged, and that could actually um, cause you to either lower your PEEP or increase your PEEP uh, due to the underlying physiology occurring either in the lung tissue or uh, in the pulmonary vasculature. Maybe you could explain that to our audience. Well, I think that the concern about um, acute core pulmonale, um, which is a, a, you know, a very interesting uh, phenomenon, you've got a patient with some degree of, of pulmonary disease, which has led them to the intensive care unit. It's led them to be intubated. They have uh, increased right ventricular afterload, and then you've gone and introduced positive pressure ventilation and exacerbated that phenomenon. So the, the, the most clean-cut example is too much PEEP aggravates that phenomenon. It introduces a resistance into the circuit in terms of right ventricular ejection and decompensates the right ventricle, which you would see on ultrasound as a distended right ventricle and a dysfunctional right ventricle in terms of its systolic function. I'm making it out to seem very easy. It's certainly more complicated that in, complicated than that in the real world because many of your patients come to you with pre-existing right ventricular disease, perhaps due to um, you know, COPD or, or other lung disease. And so it's, it can be quite difficult to discern acute 
from chronic changes at the level of the right ventricle. But certainly if you lower the PEEP and the right ventricle looks better, and there's a corresponding improvement in the patient's hemodynamics and their organ perfusion, you would be pretty happy with the story that they had acute core pulmonality and lowering, lowering the PEEP was helpful. Now, it is true, of course, that if you have way too little PEEP, that you will have a risk of having a great deal of derecruitment, a great deal of atelectasis, uh, let's say, and that that in and of itself can uh, cause an increase in right ventricular afterload and can also decompensate the right ventricle. So I think that's a less common scenario, um, but just to be aware that the thought process that we're going to can go too far. And if you were to put the patient on very, very low PEEP, you know, very little, you know, zero PEEP, uh, for example, especially if you had a patient who was prone to atelectasis, somebody perhaps who had a lot of obesity, for, uh, for example, that you may actually cause so much lung collapse and atelectasis as to, uh, you know, cause the opposite effect of what you're trying to do. Great. So in terms of your method, uh, to basically summarize it, uh, you set the initial PEEP uh, based either on the Cardinoni recommendation or the ArtsNet uh, table. Next, assess um, for possible harms from PEEP, looking either for hypotension or um, alveolar distension. And then thirdly, you look to see if you could benefit from more PEEP, um, either with increased alveolar recruitment um, or to prevent atelic trauma. And you recommended that we use uh, driving pressure as a means to um, adjust PEEP. Now, there are some more some folks say sophisticated methods of um, determining the optimal PEEP, but these are often very difficult uh, sometimes to do at the bedside or require very specialized equipment. Uh, for the benefit of our audience, maybe you could just review those for us. And why aren't we using them more regularly? Um, do you think they'll become uh, mainstream um, soon? Or are they kind of relegated to the fact that they just take a lot of time to uh, perform? Yeah, uh, you know, I, I'm not sure in that context whether sophisticated is a, a compliment or an insult. Um, you know, there are lots of other tools out there. In broad strokes, many of them are limited limited by the need for specialized equipment that doesn't exist at every center, uh, the need for specialized expertise that doesn't exist uh, within every physician, uh, and the fact that you know most you know again writ large, most of these more advanced techniques uh, are currently lacking in outcomes data. You know, you might find articles that suggest secondary benefits, but in terms of saving patients' lives, um, then the literature is not there yet, although I'm hopeful that we'll get there, you know, someday. So just to review through some of the things that commonly get talked about in terms of more sophistication, um, esophageal manometry uh, is out there and, 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 and used and, and reasonably well studied. So this is the placement of a pressure sensing balloon into the patient's esophagus in, the, in a manner analogous to how you would insert a feeding tube. Uh, that allows you to measure esophageal pressure, which is felt to be a reasonable surrogate of pleural pressure. And thereafter, you can calculate a transpulmonary pressure, which is the plateau pressure minus the esophageal pressure. And this allows you to titrate your PEEP or other ventilatory variables to a specific transpulmonary pressure. And this is the pressure that is you know, basically the transmural pressure across the wall of an alveolus. And you want, you want to keep that pressure positive in general throughout all phases of the respiratory cycle, uh, such that you avoid collapse and atelectasis. So, you know, as I said, this is uh, requiring of special equipment and, um, you know, not 
as of yet, having demonstrated sufficient outcomes, data improvements to become anything close to the standard of care, but you'll, you'll certainly hear it talked about, uh, you know, as you will, um, sort of a relatively new kid on the block, which is uh, thoracic impedance. So we're talking here about a device that measures electric impedance tomography, uh, impedance being the opposite of conductivity and air basically blocks electrical current. So it increases impedance. So if you run an electrical current through a patient's thorax, you could imagine titrating it, titrating PEEP that is to achieve uh, the greatest impedance, uh, which is an oversimplification, of course, but more impedance would need more aerated lung. So again, this is uh, is really neat, I think, um, and is being studied as we speak, but uh, is not, um, you know, achieved that that level of evidence yet. And this is quite specialized equipment, which is not widely available. Uh, the third and you know probably the last one I'll mention that we talk about in our article is is something called the recruitment to inflation ratio, which is a a new bedside technique which has the the real advantage of being easy to perform once you've wrapped your head around it on um, standard ventilators, not requiring of specialized equipment. And looking at our article, uh, it will then refer you on to some sources where you can get more information about this technique. Um, the idea here is that. These measurements, which you can do on the ventilator you already own, allow you to get some sense in theory of whether the patient is more or less likely to be recruitable. Uh, and so this is something that's interesting and up and coming that we, we, we thought worthy of, of mentioning, uh, but the same caveats apply in terms of, um, you know, the evidence available. And then after that, you can go on and on for a while talking about things like taking your patient to the CT scanner, which I think is very interesting from a research point of view, but a little bit impractical in real life and exposing the patient to the harms of transportation and radiation titrating, you know, famously the textbook will tell talk about a pressure volume curve and, and setting a peep above the lower uh, inflation point. Uh, we spent a bit of time in the article talking about the limits of this technique. And, and, uh, and so uh, that's uh, available to, to learn more. And then, from there, uh, there are many other options available, uh, but I think, um, you know, less interesting to discuss in detail. So there's, you know, sometimes I think there are as many ways to titrate PEEP as there are intensivists in the world. Um, but, you know, those, those are kind of the suite of tools that we have theoretically at our disposal these days. So, Scott, you've given us a really good overview on the different techniques available. Whenever we discuss PEEP, um, invariably uh, recruitment maneuvers come up. Um, what is the current uh, recommendations about recruitment maneuvers? Should we be performing them or are they out of vogue? Uh, I, you know, I don't want to put a blanket prohibition on recruitment maneuvers. There's always extenuating circumstances uh, where they could theoretically be of value in this difficult uh, risk benefit calculation world that we live in. I think there are, it's safe to say that there are concerns about um, recruitment maneuvers. Uh, certainly the more aggressive, quote unquote, the recruitment maneuver, meaning the higher pressure that you use and the longer you hold it for, the more concern there is about, you know, immediate problems, uh, you know, hypotension, all the way up to, you know, cardiac arrest uh, and, you know, theoretically the more subtle long-term perhaps deleterious effects of, of these. So I think that 
Mm-hmm. In terms of being out of fashion, that's probably fair to say, uh, at least, uh, you know, in the universe I exist in, uh, if you look at the the guidelines and the recommendations, then they're, they seem to be generally discouraged. You need to achieve recruitment by some means. The question is whether you recruit via, you know, a, a, uh, a recruitment maneuver, which is something that you do, you know, relatively aggressively and right away to achieve recruitment now, or whether you recruit in more subtle ways, for example, using uh, a PEEP down titration trial, as we've suggested. So I, I, you know, I think your description of recruitment maneuvers is fair, although I think to some degree, it's an open question. It, it may indeed be that perhaps the use of a less aggressive recruitment maneuver in the right kind of patient could have some benefit. I think it's an, an unknown right now. Gotcha. So, Scott, you've had the opportunity to prepare for this podcast, and we really appreciate you taking the time to share uh, your invaluable expertise on this topic. Is there anything that we have not covered or that you feel that our audience uh, should definitely be aware of? No, I, I, you know, I think we've, we've covered it. I, I hope I've communicated a sufficient degree of, of, of uncertainty uh, with respect to our uh, recommendations. I think that uh, we're not in any way, shape, or form trying to communicate the final verdict here, but more of an approach and an encouragement to, uh, you know, despite the complexity here and the frustration to not, you know, throw up your hands and walk away uh, to spend some time. So I don't think we've missed, uh, there are no glaring omissions to my mind. I think the encouragement of a, um, a uh, stepwise approach to thinking about this problem and framing it through a risk benefit analysis is, uh, you know, the, the baseline here. And beyond that, hopefully the picture will become clearer with time. I definitely agree. I think uh, your article that's um, written by you and your team gives a really great overview and a great starter for anyone who's having any challenges managing people, even those who consider themselves experts, so to go back and have a refresher on, am I doing it uh, the right way? Oh, uh, but oh, thank you. Thing- thank you. Thank you for saying that, because off the top, the first thing I meant to do, and I completely forgot, is to give uh, thanks and full credit to my um, colleagues who helped me write this paper. I was uh, an amateur, and I sought the guidance of professionals, uh, Dr. Cardinal, who's one of my uh, dear colleagues here in Ottawa, and uh, Dr. Brocard, who is in Toronto, Ontario, um, are the real uh, experts here and um, contributed just massively to my personal understanding and the writing of this article. Yeah, uh, all all of you did a really fantastic job, and I really enjoyed reading it. And I'd definitely encourage um, our audience to go ahead and read your article in chest entitled, How I Do It, Setting and Titrating Positive End Expiratory Pressure. A very big thank you to Dr. Scott Mullington for a great conversation, and a big thank you to our chest community for joining us. I'm Dominic Pepper, and this is The Chest Podcast.